They're majestic. And you feel small when you're there, I can tell you that. All right, this morning, I'm sorry they were all videos this morning. We had no choice in the matter. So last Sunday, it was 2.30 in the morning I woke up. This Sunday, it was 2.30 till I got to bed, till I got to sleep. And then 5.30, I was woken up by, oh, there's no music today. So uh, that's why there's videos. Um, Maybe I'll try to uh, put a separate service together and include uh, uh, videos that are more thought out than on the cuff. How many understand that? Although it's Christmas, right? And so... Praise the Lord for that. I I know there's a couple of things going on. Christmas-wise, Mr. Gaiman has sent those out. Please make use of those opportunities to serve other people. Uh, A lot of things going on. One thing I am going to ask you, some of you said you would like to help in the play. Um, We're looking for white helmets, like um, bike helmets. If we could use those, we could use some beards. Um, like fake beards that get put on, or not with the kind of weird nose and eyes. I'm not talking about that. But there are a few things. We're looking for um, towels on the heads, these types of things. We have angels and shepherds and wise men, and we have uh, newscasters and uh, live on the scene guys and girls. Um, reporters. So that's what the helmets are for. So if you could help in that aspect, if you could see my wife, not me, please don't come to me. Go to my wife. She'll make sure all that gets organized, but we are looking for those things. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Jonah. How many have learned and grown through Jonah? How many say it's the same old story? Uh, it is not the same old story. Jonah is a masterpiece of literature. It truly is. Unbelievable, the words that he used. I'll just give you one thing that we're going to learn today. And I, I did not develop this because I, I'm a little tentative to develop it because I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But if you look at Jonah and follow the names of God that Jonah uses. They change. In the beginning, he uses Yahweh, which is Jewish. It's almost as if it's a Jewish aspect coming from a Jewish uh, thinking. But when he talks about the ship and the sailors, it becomes um, Elohim. And when he deals with Nineveh, it's Elohim. And then at the end, it's Yahweh, Elohim. That's very fascinating to me. It's it's unique, it's special, it's cool. But I can't develop it like I need to as a teacher. How many understand that? And Lord willing, I was just talking to my wife, I'm 
going to be taking some classes again. Two of those classes will be Greek and Hebrew, um, but I, I want to know why he did those things. And, and to be honest, m- many of the commentators, they just go over it. They don't even focus on it, except the guy I'm following more and more because of his Hebrew focus. He's into it. But it's, it's, it's too far beyond me to be able to teach it to you well. Does that make sense? And so, uh, I, but it's a, it's a masterpiece of literature. So Jonah, in verse 5, is where we are in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah's departure from the city seems to follow immediately upon God's question, like we just talked about. Is your anger that intense, Jonah? God saying to Jonah, is that not the same thing that jo- uh, God was saying to Cain? Jonah once again silently fled. So instead of answering God's question, he fled from God again, is what the text is trying to express. Because the next verse, the impression that Jonah again fled confrontation from God, is suddenly confirmed by the next clause. Jonah sat east of the city. I said that direction east is coming up again, and here it is. The direction of Jonah's travel is opposite that of his initial flight. This time it's east. Why is east so important, and what does it mean? Why is it so important? The author emphasizes the direction of Jonah's movement for two reasons. First of all, east creates a sound play with Jonah's statement. In other words, this is Hebrew again. East has the same two root word as hastened. In other words, he ran away from God. Do you remember him doing that the first time? He hastened away. And and Hebrew, the the words there that are being expressed, east and hasten, are the same suffixes in those words which make it poetic in Hebrew language only. In us, it doesn't. How many understand that? So this hastened, fleeing away from God, and it's east. The connection serves to associate Jonah's initial flight with his action in verse 5 here. In other words, after God asked him, hey, why are you so intense with your anger? Jonah, instead of answering the question, does exactly what he did in Israel. And not only did he do it Physically, which he does here, he also does it figuratively. In other words, he's going to go back into open rebellion against God. The first one was open rebellion against God, was it not? You're telling me to go that way, I'm going that way. So he hastened. God says, what is wrong with your attitude? Why are you so intense of anger? And so he immediately Doesn't answer, he just flees again. He hastens away from God again into rebellion. 
Not only do we see those two word plays here in Jonah from chapter 4, verse 2 and chapter 4, verse 5, but not only that, we see in a second reason, and that east is a used many, many times in Scripture against, in, in, the, in the sense of going against God. We just saw in the Garden of Eden, or that area where, where, where Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel lived, where did the murderer flee to? The east, away from God. But it's better than that. It gets more than that. Where did Adam and Eve flee to? According to the text, they were banished to the east. The builders of Babel, you know, that great city, godly people, right? No. Where were they migrating? It's not hard. You guys already know the answer. East. And then they, as they're going east, they finally stopped, and that's where they get their name, the Babel, right? God was angry with them and confused their languages. Then we have also, in Genesis, there's many of them, and there's many throughout the text, but there was a man named Abram, and his nephew was named what? Lot. And Lot separated from Adam to where? You know the answer. <laughs> to the east. And where was east? Sodom and Gomorrah. So we see this it's like a pattern throughout, especially the Old Testament. Gordon Wenham, if you study Old Testament, you're going to find this name over and over again. Gordon Wenham, he's a popular theologian commenting on this issue, states, these references to eastward migration in Genesis mark stages in humanities drift away from God. What does that say about Boston from here? Sorry. <laughs> and that was just, I'm just kidding. But the point is, we have gone farther and farther away from God, even as Christians. Similarly, Jonah's movement east of the city seems to signal, like we said before, his return to rebellion against God. So what does Jonah do? We find in the text that that's just in front of you. Jonah erects a hut, shelter. He erects a hut. He must not have been a very good one. Why was that? These huts are, in, are, are, are reminiscent, or remind us of the booze that Israelites used during their desert journey to Canaan. The hut has the idea of, I need something to keep me from the arid, hot desert. By the way, this is Mosul, Iraq. Excuse me. And this does, by the way, the booze were used during Israel's wandering from God. 
Just like here, Jonah is doing the exact same thing. God, I'm not happy that you gave mercy on somebody besides me. And I'm not even going to answer you. I'm just walking away. And here's the deal I'm going to give you. And we talked about the deal two weeks ago. If you really are going to give them mercy like you say you are, then kill me. There's my proposition to you, God. And I'm just going to go up here and I'm going to sit on top of this hill in my hut that I construct. And I'm going to do my own thing and see if maybe you just might change your mind and judge them like you should judge them. How many say that's a pretty pathetic prophet? It reminds me of the patheticness of us as Christians. Doing the same thing in our own way. Because we think that our ways are better than God's ways. We would never say that. But we do. The hut tells us how bad it is in the surroundings Jonah was in. And Jonah just experienced the seas in hospitality, did he not? The turbulent seas, his second flight leads him into the arid desert. So now, remember, he says, the God of the land and the sea. Do you remember that? And here he is. He hates the sea now because of the monster. And now he's out in the desert and he's getting pummeled again. Jonah's having a bad life at this moment. He can't get away from God. Both of these environments, whether the sea or the desert, symbolize chaos and death in biblical thought and correspond really to Jonah's spiritual state. So I did a little research this week. I wanted to know how hot does it get out in Mosul? How many would like to know that? By the way, if you look it up, look up Mosul, you'll see Mosul slash Nineveh. Okay, so that, that's where they're at. You've heard that during the Iraq war a lot, right? The city of Mosul. So on average, there is 16 inches of annual rain that can be expected. Most of that falls in the wintertime. Summers are extremely hot. During the hottest part of the day, temperatures rise above 122 degrees. Do you know about that? There you go. Talk to Jason. He knows all about that. 140 degrees. Oh, but it's a dry heat. Okay, but hang on. As I was reading, it says sometimes the, the um, humidity is 94%. Now, I was never in that. Were you ever in that? Ugh. Tell you what, how many want to go to Nineveh? 
So, because of the extreme heat, it is best to avoid the visiting this area during the summer. You think? Jonah assumes his station under the hut for two reasons. What are they? First, I need shade. You know, that densely wooded area of Iraq. <laughs> when you look at it, usually it's all sand, right? Now, again, Jason would know more than I do on that issue. But obviously, shade was needed. And by the way, the shade was needed. Shade is usually associated with God's protection. But here's Jonah doing his own thing, his own way. Do you notice that? We'll see it even better as we get into, deeper into the text here. Ironically, in the context, the term refers to the shade of Jonah's making. This is Jonah-made shade. This is man's fixed it. Let me ask you this. Would you rather sit under God's fix it or man's fix it? Well, here's the problem. Jonah's fighting with God. So in his mind, there's no way I'm talking to God. I'm just going to do this myself. I'm mad. Now, have you ever built something when you're mad? At bare minimum, he's got to get up there and get it fixed so he can sit down and watch the fireworks. Maybe. If God's going to change his mind again. Because he's already changed his mind according to Jonah, right? Quote, unquote. And God doesn't change his mind. We'll get to that in a little bit. Maybe even not this week, but next week for sure. God doesn't necessarily change his mind, amen? Man does not influence God changing his mind, amen? But to him, it looks like God said they're going to get judged and now they're God's giving them mercy. And I understand it because God gives mercy because that's who he is. But maybe he'll love me more than he loves them. And he'll change his mind again. The issue is, he loves both of them. Amen? And we're going to see that. So he went up there on this hill and... <clears throat> To be in the and he built a hut for the shade, but then he also went up there because the text says it gives us a second purpose of why Jonah was up there. It was to wait and to see what would happen in the city. He was still hoping that God would change his mind. You see, it seems odd that Jonah would wait to see what Nineveh's fate would be when the narrative makes clear that the city's fate has already been determined. God already said, they, I, I will relent of my judgment. I will give them mercy. Why is Jonah up so he could see what happens in the sea? Maybe God will change his mind. That's got to be what it's in his head. Maybe Jonah deal... Jonah's deal, the offer to God in his mind would change God's mind. By the way, can God change his mind? Malachi 3.6 I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. 
James 1.17 Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change. Numbers chapter 23 God is not a man that he would lie, nor a son of man that he would change his mind. Based on these verses, does God change? No. I will tell you, open theism is a lie from the pit of hell. He does not change on the whims of man. That is not the God we serve. Open theism is this idea that as we do something, God reacts to our doing stuff. So he's the great fixer, the great reactor. No, he is the sovereign God. He does not change. By the way, does God desire all men everywhere to repent? And so one one repents, will he forgive? And have mercy. Absolutely. God is a God of His Word. He is unchanging. He is unchangeable. He cannot change His mind. Although God cannot change His mind, Jonah thought he could test God with Jonah's request for death. And this wasn't new to Jonah. This wasn't a novel idea. (coughs) Moses did the same thing. Moses said to God, blot me out of your book. Don't wipe them out. And it, because of, uh, uh, my words and my brain are gone. Anthropomorphism We can't understand God. How many understand that? We cannot perfectly understand God. So in order for God to explain who He is, He has to use human words and things that humans can understand. That's why we have what's called anthropomorphisms. That's why it says God repents, God relents, God changes His mind. But He wasn't literally changing His mind. It was helping us understand what he did. Jonah sat under his hut waiting to see if that any change might occur in the outcome that he vehemently protested it. Jonah probably has two visions in his mind. One is that Nineveh's repentance will quickly evaporate as the citizens instinctively revert back to their wickedness and violence. This might result in God rescinding his mercy if his clemency had been motivated strictly by Nineveh's repentance. But I will tell you this, God's mercy has to do with Israel in the end, not Nineveh. You say, what in the world are you talking about? God is giving mercy to Nineveh to use them as his tool to judge Israel. And he will. You see, He literally didn't change his mind. He knew that all along. That was his plan the whole time. He just wants to help people understand what mercy and judgment are and that God is a God of both. And it is his will how he 
bears them out and when he bears them out, not ours. The other possibility is that God might do for one of his own what he had done for Nineveh, that God's going to change his mind. Verses 6 through 8. So the Lord appointed a plant. Okay, so God says, Jonah, what are you doing? Can you, I can see Jonah. What are you doing? What is that? How many of you have ever had a child or were a child and you built something and your parents came out and said, oh, that is so beautiful. What is that? How many know what I'm talking about? I mean, here's, what is that? Is that the best you can do? Probably. So the Lord God appointed a plant. And it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Jonah's bipolar. I mean, it, within two verses, we got this guy, he wants to kill himself if, this, if they really repent, and then the next, he's so angry with God, and then the next, oh, thank you, God. I love you. How many think that's ridiculous? How many see that? That is ridiculous. That's exactly what we do. There is no difference. I did, God, you did it my way. Woohoo! And then, God, you didn't do it my way. Why not? What's wrong with you? We do the same thing. It is not our will that matters. It's His. It's His mercy. It's His judgment. It's His timing. We're the object of that. Not the means of that. Amen. God is clearly teaching Jonah the universal scope of divine mercy because reality is, what are you doing? These are the enemies of your people. They have killed, murdered your people. And they stand in the way of accomplishing your end goal of total kingdom life, of freedom and, 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 and perfection, amen, promised to Israel. And Jonah's just angry that that's not going to happen. By the way, it still hasn't happened. But it will. Amen? It will. So this is where, by the way, in, the, in, the, in these languages here, the Lord God, this is where he says, I told you we get to it, this is where he says, Elohim Yahweh. He uses both of them to talk about God. Transition from Yahweh to Elohim throughout the text, and now here, it's the compound, Yahweh Elohim. I'm just going to give you, there's, there's a whole paper written on it, and I'm just going to give you a, a synopsis of that paper. Very, very elementary. The writer says, it's a preference for Yahweh in an Israelite context and Elohim everywhere else. 
So when he's talking with Israel, it's, it's Yahweh. When he talks with, about Gentiles, it's Elohim. Chapters 1, 1 through 4, 5 could be a textbook example of this rule. Since the name Yahweh is in sole possession of the opening episodes, which concern the prophet's adventures occurring 19 times in 30 verses, but it is immediately replaced in chapter 3 as Elohim. And there's five occurrences there where Nineveh repents of its evil way and its violence in response to a divine but not specifically Yahwistic message. As soon as Jonah regains the limelight, the name Yahweh appears because he's dealing with an Israelite again. How many get this? He's changing the names of God depending on what peoples he's talking about and the deal is Jonah's realizing that it's not just Yahweh it's Elohim also are you following this he said listen I'm not what he's saying literally in the context here in the literally literary context he's saying listen Yahweh is our God Israel knows that but when he deals with Gentilic, it's Elohim. And now they repented. Elohim. Not Yahweh, Elohim. And now he's putting together Yahweh, Elohim. In other words, God was merciful to Israel much of their life. Amen. Now God is being merciful to this Gentilic anti-Israel people. But it's the same God. He's trying to make sense of it in his mind. How many get this? He's the God of both. And amen to that. Amen. This is, a, this is one of the first times where an Israelite prophet, it might even be the very first time, where he sees this repentance among Gentiles. That's never happened like this before. What is going on? I don't understand. I don't get it. But what he is getting, slowly, is that God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the world. Does that make sense? And he's getting it in his talking when he talks about God, in reference to God. He's explaining he's getting it when he says, Lord God. It's bold. In essence, God, Yahweh was used by Jonah as he understood that Yahweh is the God of Israel. But it changes to Elohim when God is the God of Gentiles. And it also states, then, in essence, Yahweh Elohim, the God of all. And that's very interesting. I said I wasn't going to do much on it. That's the elementary part of it. it I'm sure it, it's much deeper, believe me, because I can't explain it all. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Look what happens. God takes an indirect approach when he confronts Jonah's issue with the perceived injustice of divine mercy. In other words, God, you're unjust to give mercy to the enemies of your chosen people. That's unjust in his mind. That's not right. So what does God do? 
God appoints a plant. Do you remember appoints something else in nature earlier in the text? Yes, very good. God, so Jonah was going the wrong way before. He, did the, he said, forget you, God, I'm out of here, and took off the other way. And then God appointed a fish, a great fish, a sea creature. Same words here. Now Jonah's doing the same thing. Forget you, I'm going up here and I'm building my own thing and I'm doing my own thing. La-di-da-da-da to you. And God appoints a plant. So the plant and the sea creature are literally natural things that God is appointing or supernatural things that He created. I don't know which one, but they, they belong in nature, in essence. They're nat- natural things. Like the storm of the sea, God uses nature in an elaborate object lesson designed to change Jonah's perspective regarding the relationship between justice and mercy. How many of you want to see people Get justice. How come you don't want to see you get justice? I'm asking a question because that's the very question that's in this text. These guys are bad people. You don't understand. Yeah. Are you better than they? God begins by appointing a plant. The author uses the same verb with reference to the plant that he used with reference to the fish. When the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, now the Lord is appointing a plant to cover Jonah. Both served as God's instruments for delivering Jonah. Both are God's mercy on someone who doesn't deserve His mercy. Just like Nineveh, who doesn't deserve the mercy. The fish delivered Jonah from the consequences of his rebellious flight. The plant is designed to deliver Jonah from his misery of his conflict with God. I'm mad at God. Can't we just get rid of the heat too? (sighs) Both the fish and the plant are symbols of God's grace that God extends to Jonah. So what, what is Jonah's problem? What is the sin that so easily besets him? Pride may be one of them. I would say that the, that the sin that Jonah has at this moment is the same sin that has totally enveloped our current culture. That sin is the sin of envy. You say, what? You get this little known sin and bring that up to it's super important. Follow with me if you would, please. Practically, God's mercy comes in many forms. 
The question is, do we look at those appointed mercies as true mercies? Or do we complain because it's not what we wanted or what we desired? How come he gets and I... Is there envy in our American culture? It's deeper than you think. For Jonah, like many in America today, his sin was the sin of envy. One of his sins was certainly the sin of envy. He did not believe that the Ninevites deserved mercy, but he believed he did. And now here is Nineveh experiencing mercy and grace of God, but it's not the same as what he's getting. They get not judged. I get a plant. I'm the one that's a good Christian. I'm the one that's following the rules. I'm the one that God loves. What is going on here? How many, how many can see this? He did not believe that the Ninevites deserved mercy. The very mercy Jonah experienced over and over again. Envy is a wicked problem. Not only with Jonah. But look around in our culture today. It's prevalent. How many are tired of, uh, what do they call it, when, when people were given... Uh, we're given more than they deserve. More, uh, uh. Okay, so if, if you went into a place of work and you had a black woman, a woman, and a white man, affirmative action, thank you. How many of you know what affirmative action is? Okay. Affirmative action is this thing, you could, you could summarize it in one word, equity. Not equality, there's difference. Equity. You take, they, they, that group didn't get all that they should. You've been blessed with all this. So we're going to elevate and give them money to hire this person instead of that person, and that'll make it equal. How many understand that? I didn't say if you agree or not, understand. You see, envy is at the very heart of a lot of problems in America today. Why in the world does a guy want to be a girl? Why does a girl want to be a guy? Why do gay and lesbians want to be married like a heterosexual? Why, why can't I have that Jeep and I get stuck with a Toyota? Whatever, we, we, we have this idea of the, that this is better than that and I deserve it. No, we deserve nothing. But envy is the issue, is one of the issues for sure. You see, the human mind dreams and their eyes roam. Are we really grateful for the mercy that God already has bestowed on our lives? Especially in America, we get so spoiled that we forget about the grace and mercy God took us away from. Amen. The horribleness that we were in. 
We were dead in our trespasses of sin, but God in His mercy. We can't forget about that, but we do all the time. The grass is always greener on the other side, right? One of the major sins in this world today, in this culture that we live in today, is that of envy. The Bible talks about it in multiple passages. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy. Romans chapter 13 let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and in envy. Proverbs chapter 14, envy is rottenness to the bones. So envy is very close to jealousy. How many understand that? You can be a negative jealous. Negative jealous and envy would be very similar. Here's the deal though. Is jealousy ever biblically good? Can it be? Yeah, God is a jealous God. So we see in the Bible, we never see that envy is good. Never. Envy is wickedness. A simple definition of envy is to want what belongs to somebody else. We are literally paying people to stay at home and not work. But for some reason, they deserve what goods that other people are working for. Who decides that? Now, there is one person who can rightfully decide that, and that's God. Amen to that. By the way, with God, equity and equality are the same. Because His equity is perfect equality. But we, it isn't. We think wrongly. We think depravatively, if you will. Envy where do we see it today? Envy can ex be expressed itself in resentfulness, dissatisfied with possessions, dissatisfied with fortune or position, achievements or success. Why in the world do you think everybody that plays the game gets a trophy? It's this very issue. The acts of the flesh are obvious. The Bible says that envy is an act of the flesh. The result of human sin. The Bible says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, jealousy, envy. That's the idea. Jealousy. Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissent, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. How many think orgies and drunkenness are horrible? How many say amen to that? Envy is right next to it. By the way, this is, you remember the, the, the fruits of the Spirit? This is Galatians 5, the fruits of the flesh. The antithesis of that. And the Bible says, I warn you, 
as I did before, that those who live like this with envy will not inherit the kingdom of God. Envy is distress or resentment we feel when others have what we have not. The Bible never speaks of envy in a good light. Never. Another word that envy is very close to is the word covetousness. To covet is to have an excessive desire to possess what belongs to another. Usually related to tangible items like property. Covetousness is an intense craving or selfish desire that threatens the fundamental rights of others. By the way, Exodus 20 brings this right home. You shall not covet your neighbor's what? House. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to his neighbor. That's envy. Covetousness. Joshua chapter 7, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them. I wanted them. And what did he do? He took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. What good is that? Look where that envy got him. Dead. With all of his family. Cain was envious of God's favor over Abel. And we read about that this morning. Very much so like the envy talked about here with Jonah. Esau envied his brother Jacob. Now, who wouldn't? Was Jacob that stand-up guy? <laughs> he stole the birthright. How many can identify or understand Esau's problem with Jacob? Absolutely. Esau was so angry that he was ready to kill him. We find that in Genesis 27. Here's another one, and it's very interesting. Jake, uh, Rachel dealing with Jacob. You know, all these stories surround Jacob. Rachel. Rachel envied her sister Leah. Why? She had kids. And I talked to my wife about this. Can you imagine getting to the altar and having the sister how many understand what I'm talking about? Are you kidding me? But the reality is, Rachel was so mad. Here's what it says, and this is so, this is so good, because Jacob gets it right here. Jacob gets it very right. Now when Jacob, not Jacob, can you combine Jacob and Rachel? No. <laughs> when Rachel saw that 
Leah bore Jacob no children. I'm sorry, that she, Rachel, bore no children. She became jealous of Rachel. And she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. She was so angry. Does that, Moses, don't do this. Kill me. Jo Noah or Jonah, kill me before you give them mercy. Listen, God's plans will not be thwarted, even by big old important you. Right? And here's Rachel. She is so ticked that she'd rather die and then watch her sister bear Jacob the kids. And here's what Jacob says to her. Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. And he said, this is awesome. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? It is not about you, Rachel. It is not about me, Rachel. It is about God and his choices. Amen. So stop being it. Don't think you're all that because you ain't. Saul. And I get this. We come in battle for the Philistines. What happens? They get into, David and Saul come into battle. They, they, they win the war. They come back. And what is the whole town saying? There's our king. Woo! We love our king. He's the greatest in the world. Oh, but then there's David. Saul has killed a thousand, but David had ten thousand. The burning envy angered within him. The Jewish leaders arrested Jesus because of envy. In today's society, envy has saturated our, our, our culture. We have gay and lesbian couples. Did God make that? We have males wanting to be females. Females desiring to be males. And oh man, we as Christians, we get so upset with that. But here's what we have too. Pornography. Rampant in Christianity. You're going to get upset about gays and lesbians and and. And, and males want to be transgenderism, then you better get upset, just as upset about pornography. Amen. I mean, we sit there and yell and throw stones, and yet hold that pornography as one of our special quiet sins. That is envy. And I don't know what kind of moron you are that you're going to envy your computer screen over your wife. How dumb can you be? That's envy. Affairs. Listen, God, before God and man, you made a covenant with God. This is my wife. This is my husband. And yet, pornography becomes you. Affairs are desirable. Equality versus equity. 
as the world defines it. The internet. I hate the internet sometimes. Many times. And here's why. The internet has caused way too many people to be masters of everything in their own mind. You've seen the commercials. Are you a doctor? No, I just stayed at a Holiday Inn last night. How many have ever seen that commercial? Are you a mechanic? No, but I watched YouTube. Let me tell you folks, God designed you to be unique and gave every one of you a specific vocation, a specific calling. To be envious of another's giftedness is wicked and certainly an affront toward God. Listen, that lady who is excelling and promoting her vocation that God has called her to, she's a lady, she loves the Lord, she is awesome. That's not who you are. You are a man that is to do the same type of things, but differently. That's your calling in life. Accept it. Don't push it away. Amen? YouTube has made everyone a professional in every vocation. At least that is what is currently being experienced. God called you to to whatever your vocation is, whatever your calling is. Passionately run after that calling and learn as much as you can to serve God in that calling. Be humble outside that calling. I have a relative that literally cried. Right, I was, I was standing with him, I was sitting with him at the table. His pastor came in and this person literally cried and he looked at his pastor in front of me and he said this, I wish I could be like Tim and preach the word with passion and cerebralness. And the pastor looked at him correctly and said, his name, <laughs> you're not him. God's called you to something different. Amen? I don't want to be like Mike. He's tall. How many get this? I do not say this to puff myself up whatsoever. I say that because even though all Christians have a certain level of theology, most have not been immersed in educations as the uh, pastor has and as and God is the one who gives the gift of shepherding and preaching and teaching. You just don't conjure that up. Amen. Let's just be honest. How many of you have ever been in fundamental, like the hyper-fundamental Baptist-type churches? You've been in them churches? You know what? This concept totally... Is mis misunderstood because here's what they, every young man in there needs to be a pastor. And then we wonder why our pastors are falling like flies. Because they're not called to be a pastor. You did the calling, not God. Paul said the same thing, remember, with the gift of tongues? He did the same thing. 
Don't go after the tongues. Why? Tongues are for certain people, for certain situations. Knock it off. Amen? To say what that person said, I want to be like Tim in, in this, is to say God made you, made God, in God, let me try this again, God in you made a mistake. And I desire His gifts instead of what you've given me. That is envy. Korah did that with Moses. Do you remember that? K-Korah, not C-Korah. And it's a he, not a she. And God wiped him out along with thousands of others because of the envy. All of you have a calling, a giftedness, and teaching to do what you do. Revel in that vocation. Do not envy others. Paul discusses the principle of tongues. Often, I call friends to pick their brains where God has placed them. I have a friend in Wisconsin. He loves, he loves diesel trucks. He, 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 uh, and I call him and say, hey, what can you tell me about this? I'm not a professional on that stuff. I don't know what I'm doing. I can go on YouTube. I can see how to change the, the, the uh, glow plugs and the injectors. But you know what? I would take a week doing it and it'd be all wrong. Even if I watched the YouTube thing. That's not where I'm at. Amen. It's not. I can never be an accomplished electrician, plumber, framer, banker, roofer, contractor, excavator, or architect. But you talk to some people, they think they are. Stop it. Revel in your vocation. Revel, revel in your calling. Does that make sense? Jonah was to be a prophet for the Lord, to have people repent. He wasn't reveling in that. He hated it. In this room, each of you have a specialty. Your special gift is directly from God to serve. Your upbringing and your education has been mercifully given by God to you to excel in that specialty, all of which is to glorify His name, not to swell up with pride, but to glorify Almighty God by serving others. Jonah was envious of God's mercy on Israel's enemy. It may be fair to say that Jonah understood God's mercy to be a horrific blotch to God's people. Why in the world would you give to our enemy what you promised to us? That's not fair. I am God, he says, and everything I do is right. Who are you to question that? Envy is an issue of the heart. Jesus taught that purity and godliness come from inside a person, not from the external actions. Envy is one of those many inward vices or heart attitudes that defiles a person. 
Mark talks about that. It is what comes from inside that defiles you. For within, out of a person's heart, comes evil thoughts, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. This is what defiles you. We talked about 1 Corinthians. Paul taught in Galatians 5. We talked about that. We must learn the secret of contentment. Wasn't it David that said in whatever, or Paul said it, Paul said it, in whatever state I am, there be what? What? Content. Whatever lot in life I have been given by God, I must be content. Are we content people? Or are we like Jonah and very envious of how God gives them and doesn't give us in our perception. The sin of envy has dire consequences. And right now, I'm, I'm, I've done a, 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 a little bit more research that I'm, I usually don't do. But the number one thing on our minds probably is, is in the sexual aspect. The transgenderism and the pornography. And by the way, those are the two probably hugest sex problems we have in this world today. The sin of envy has dire consequences. I'm going to read a non-commentator and a non-Christian. According to John Hopkins, what is that? Very popular hospital, right? In 2015... A John Hopkins researcher in 2015, transsexual issues and sexual reassignment surgery are receiving a great deal of attention and support in the media, school, government, and in health professionals today. Dr. Paul McHugh, former chairperson of the Department of Psychiatry at John Hopkins Hospital, has written that the idea that one's sex is fluid and a matter of open to and a matter open to choice runs unquestioned through our culture, and is reflected everywhere in the media, the theater, the classroom, and in many medical clinics. It has taken on cult-like features. This was in 2015. I wonder what he'd say now. Its own special lingo, internet chat rooms providing slick answers to new recruits, and clubs for easy access to dresses and styles supporting the sex change. It is doing much damage to... This is, this is the psychiatrist, the PhD psychiatrist at John Hopkins. It is doing much damage to families, adolescents, and children and should be confronted as an opinion without biological foundations wherever it emerges. The conclusion from this paper was that sexual restructured surgery, all right, that's SRS, was not successful in treating this condition and led to the discontinuation of SRS at John Hopkins. In other words, they refused to do it after the studies were done. In spite of their earlier findings and lack of, uh, of evidence that SRS conveys any benefits compared with the unoperated upon control groups, the practice of SRS has continued and has been extended to other age groups. 
I want to I want to get through all this mumbo jumbo. I, I wrote it down, so I thought it was important. But <clears throat> in 2015, Boston's study of 180 transsexual youths who had undergone the surgery had a twofold to threefold increase of risk of psychiatric disorders, including depression, anxiety orders, suicidal ide ideation, suicide attempt, self-harm without lethal intent, and both inpatient and outpatient mental health treatment compared to 338 quarter, the, whatever. Since the mean age, listen to this very carefully. So in other words, they did this study it's two and threefold risk of all these problems. The mean age, how many know what mean age means? The average age. The mean age at which youth present, presented for consideration for sexual reassignment surgery in the Boston study was age nine. Providing this information in a way that the children would understand would be challenging. But are you kidding? You think? But nonetheless could be done in regard to discussing suicide risk and successful alternative treatments from gender dysphoria. And he's, gonna, he's going to advocate. The whole reason he wrote this is we need to talk to people about this. It's something wrong with the psyche that's causing this. The largest study to date of the long-term psychological state of post-surgeries persons was an analysis of over 300 people who had undergone these surgeries in Sweden over the past 30 years. This 2011 study demonstrated that persons after sex reassignment have considerably high, higher risk for mortality suicidal behavior, and psychiatric morbidity than the general population. So how bad is this higher risk? I'll tell you, in 2014, Dr. Paul McHugh wrote in the Wall Street Journal about the research, most shockingly, I quote, most shockingly, their suicide mortality rose almost 20-fold above the comparable non-transgender population. This disturbing result has yet no explanation, but probably reflects the growing sense of isolation reported by the aging transgender after surgery. The research paper was trying to sound an alarm and call for psychological treatment instead of surgeries, but this paper has a gapping hole. You cannot help a person's mind as well as you could without Jesus, without God's Word. They have a mental problem, but the biggest problem they have is they are in the world without God. God designed us to be who, we, who and what we are. It is not up to us to change that because we envy something different 
but instead embrace that. Jonah was envious, and the result of his envy was an argument with God, and Jonah taking on God as if Jonah himself knew better than God. There is a God. Amen. We are not Him. Amen. Submit. Be humble. And revel in who and what God has made you. Jonah tried to replace God. He envied someone else getting mercy. Envy is a plague in our culture. How many knew that these people with surgeries are 20 times more susceptible? That's huge. If that envy of transgenderism does that, what is pornography doing to you? What is pride doing for you, to you? These are inside sins. I'll never forget one of the last times I was talking with uh, a young lady getting going to be married. And the statement was said, sex before marriage isn't that big of a deal. Why would they say that? Because they're envious of somebody else's position of marriedness. And they want to have the same thing that the married couple has. Well, God has laws. And that's not one of them. I said, listen, young lady, do you realize that sex before marriage, adultery, any kind of fornication, any of that is a special and unique sin to yourself. And it hurts you like none other. Well, what are you talking about? The Bible doesn't say that. Oh, yes, it does. It's a sin against your body. The temple that God has made. And that is horrible. Young people, it's easy because fornication goes with you, right? You, you, have to, you can't be married to fornicate. So everybody thinks about you. And I'm telling you, be careful. Don't ever think that. That's so wrong. But the reality is there's not a person here who is outside of those desires and problems. If you can't handle pornography, get off Facebook. Some of the stupidest thing I ever heard is, hey, I have a pornography problem. pornography problem. I ask, are you on TikTok? Oh, yeah. What? What? It will twist your mind 
and the 20% suicidal more than anything else, what is it doing to you? How many are understanding this? I'm begging of you. Don't throw away the left, what's left of your God-glorifying life with something as dumb as this. Especially when God says, no. Jonah was envious. And everybody basically that knows Jonah has all these little names for him. Because I will tell you, I will tell you some of them that aren't there. If I said Jonah was a godly man, what would you say? If I told you that Jonah loved Jesus, what would you say? If I told you that John or Jonah loved God, what would you say? If I told you that Jonah was a bigot, what would you say? You see, Jonah is not known for godly marks. He's not only affected his life because of the envy he had in Nineveh, but his, the rest of his eternal, well, on this earth anyways, it's not a positive tune name, is it? How many of you would love to name your kid Jonah? Hey, Jonah, you God-hating kid, come on up here. How many get this? Sin damages your life. Say, well, I'm saved. Yes, but you're sinning. Repent. Ask forgiveness. Get rid of it. Start embracing Christ. Get in His Word. Dump everything you have to to get rid of that sin that so easily besets you. Because it'll keep coming back. Amen? Jonah was envious. Let us not succumb to the same sin that Jonah did. And let's glorify God the rest of our lives. Mr. Gaiman, could you come and close us with prayer?